0: Hello everybody and welcome back to the Most Pleasant Exhaustion Podcast brought to you by ITL Coaching and Performance and Blue Pineapple Travel. This is George and we appreciate you tuning in with us once again. Uh, We have a great interview for you tonight that I'm super eager to share. Before we get into that, I did want to mention the incredible performances that came out of Berlin this morning. I'm sure that you've probably seen it by now, but Elliot Kipchoge cemented his status as the greatest marathoner of all time uh, by lopping about 78 seconds off of the current world record in the marathon uh, he ran 20138 um, which is 4.39 per mile, and just a, a stunning performance. Um, we're going to have a lot more to say about that, but we were both very excited. Patrick and I both are very excited uh, to see Elliot Kipchoge run so brilliantly this morning, and so we look forward to talking a little bit more about that with you all over the course of the next short while here. Um, tonight, though, we have an interview with professional triathlete Haley Chura. Uh, Haley is out of Bozeman, Montana. She grew up in Montana, and then she moved to Colorado, and then to South Carolina, where she completed. High school. Uh, When she was done with high school, she went off to the University of Georgia, and she was at the University of Georgia from 2003 to 2007. Along the way, she helped the Bulldogs win a national title in swimming in 2005, and she herself qualified for the Olympic trials in both 2004 and in 2008 uh, in the backstroke. And you're going to hear about some of the unique training she put in to get ready for those 2008 Olympic trials in the backstroke. Uh, As soon as she was done with college though, she started running some marathons, she started dabbling with some triathlons, uh, and quickly found a place in long course triathlon. She qualified for Kona uh, in her first year as a triathlete, and fittingly in 2009, her first time in Kona, she was the very first age grouper out of the water. And then she was the very first age grouper out of the water in 2010, and then again in 2011. And then again in 2012. Now she wasn't the first age grouper out of the water in 2013 because she had announced in 2012 that she was going pro, and so in 2013 she was the first pro woman out of the the water. Um, so an incredible athlete here. But she's going to talk to us a little bit about uh, where she came from, how she came along, how she developed as a triathlete, um, and then ultimately how she was knocked off the rails, um, knocked off her path a little bit in 2015 when she was run over by a car. Uh, and she's been steadily making her way back from that. So, um, a lot of interesting things to to learn here from Haley Chura about herself as an athlete, um, and about equity in sport, and and all sorts of other really really cool stuff that that I'm excited to uh, to, to discuss with her. Um, she, you can find Haley at, uh, at HaleyChura23 on Instagram. She's also on Twitter, at Haley Chura. She also has her own podcast, um, her and Alyssa Godeski, another great pro, uh, female triathlete. Uh, it's at Iron Women Podcast, um, and you can find that at ironwomenpodcast.com. Uh, Haley, we should also mention, is sponsored by Fest Queen, uh, by Tier, by Quintana Roo and then she really got her start in Dynamo Multisport here in Atlanta and she continues to be sponsored by Dynamo Multisport and and is a gigantic advocate for Dynamo Multisport which is a a great program here in the Atlanta area. Um, You can reach out to me uh, at George at itlcoaching.com. You can reach out to Patrick at Patrick at itlcoaching.com. And remember always, if you want to reach out to the podcast, you want to drop us a line, not only can you find us on Facebook and on Twitter, but also you can send us an old school email at pleasantpodcast at gmail.com. So without further ado, let's get into our interview with professional triathlete Haley Churra. Haley Chura, Pro Triathlete, welcome to the Most Pleasant Exhaustion Podcast.
1: Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here.
0: Uh, Patrick and I are psyched that you're here. I was uh, saying, and I've been saying, that, that I've been wanting to have you on the podcast for like two years, and so, so this, is a, this is the, the uh, realization of a long-time podcast dream for me, so thank you.
1: <laughs> I'm glad we made it happen. No, yeah. it's, it's good to be here and uh, chatting with you guys.
0: Right on, right on. And, and we're talking to you from Bozeman, Montana, right?
1: I am. I'm in Bozeman. You, you know me. I lived in Atlanta for a long time, and that is where I started my triathlon career, but moved out to Bozeman about a little over two years ago, and this is where my family is. It's where I'm from, and it's a lot less traffic, mm-hmm. <laughs> so it works well for me in, in my career and where I am in life.
0: Right on, right on. And, and so you say you grew up in Bozeman, Right.
1: Yes, I did. My family is from here. My grandparents lived here. Um, they have both passed away. And then my, my dad grew up here. And I lived here until I was about 10 years old, actually. And then um, I did live in Colorado for a little while and then in South Carolina. And I graduated from high school in South Carolina okay. and um, ended up going to the University of Georgia. So I I lived in the South for... I guess, 16 years. So that is why I like to throw in the occasional y'all. And um, I embraced that. I loved living in the South. I mean, I did love it. It was It was very different, and it was wild to move there as a 15-year-old. Um, just having always lived in Montana and Colorado before then, but I obviously loved it because I stayed for, for so long, but it has been nice to get back, um, get back to Montana and get back to the mountains. And especially since I do kind of live so much of an outdoor lifestyle now, um, it's, you know, it's nice to have those right outside your door.
0: Right on. Right on. I feel like, so that actually answers my first question. I, I, I know that you went to the University of Georgia, and I knew that you were originally from Montana. I thought you went from Montana to UGA. And my first question was going to be like, how did you end up at UGA from Montana?
1: Um, <laughs> yeah, it wasn't quite as far. My family was living in, in South Carolina, just outside Charleston, South Carolina, when I graduated from high school. And I went to UGA for swimming, though. So I mean, that was the main reason oh. I wanted to be on the best possible swim team that I could possibly be on. Um, that was, you know, the whole reason I went to UGA. I wanted to be on a national championship swim team and we did win in 2005 we won the national championship and that is probably still my the highlight of my swimming career so I am you know I'm thankful that I had made that decision but yes my parents moved back to Bozeman um, I think two weeks into my freshman year so my commute home got a lot longer
2: (laughs) (laughs) very good very good absolutely and now did you grow up swimming Um, how you know how long were you a swimmer before you started at Georgia
1: yeah, I did grow up swimming. I probably started swimming when I was four or five years old. And growing up in Bozeman, really what you can do in the winter here is, well, at least I, my mom was a downhill skier. So we did, um, my sister and I did downhill skiing. And then we, they have a 50 meter indoor pool here in Bozeman. Mm-hmm. So we swam. And my mom was in a really pretty bad ski accident in her early 20s. And so she wasn't really excited about us ski racing. Sure. So we were kind of like, we would ski with the swim team, our ski team, but we weren't allowed to race. And um, but we were allowed to race in swimming. And eventually, it got to a point where my swimming was much, much better than my skiing. And it was very obvious that if I was going to do something in college and have a future, um, you know, and get a college scholarship and potentially pay for college, it was going to come with swimming. And so um, I did stop skiing and. Uh, especially because I didn't want to get hurt. I didn't want to get hurt at that point and focused on swimming.
0: Very good. And how old were you then? Was that like high school or middle school or?
1: Yeah, I guess it was when I was probably 11 or 12 years old. Um, You know, I just, I, once I moved, we moved to Colorado. I was pretty focused on swimming. I just knew from a pretty young age that that was my best chance to go to college without student loans, which I know sounds crazy, but I was a fairly financially savvy um, young young kid, I guess. It was just one of those things. I was like, okay, I can – you know I can go to college and be on a team and be with people who are just like me and that you know at the you know i didn 't know I would at that time i didn 't know i 'd go to Georgia and that'd be on such a good team, but I just knew that I could possibly you know swim in college, and I think I really looked up to some of the older girls on the team both in in Bozeman and in um, Fort Collins in Colorado where I lived and These high school age girls, they were, you know, going to college and they came back and they just talked about how much fun it was. And they taught, they wore their school colors. And I admired them so much and I really wanted to be like them. And that was kind of what set me on that path where I was like, I knew I wanted to swim in college. And it got me up. I mean, I think when I was 11 years old is when I started. getting up for morning practice, you know, and I just remember being like, I couldn't fall asleep at night because I was so excited for my 5am alarm. So I could go <laughs> swim before school. <laughs> like it was that was me at 11 years old. I was just so excited. I lo- I still love swimming. And I, I give my, a lot of the coaches I've had through my life credit for that for keeping me, you know, the love of the sport. I've just always really enjoyed it.
0: For sure. Yeah. That's actually the reason why I asked is when you when you fully gave yourself over to swimming, because what I was really asking is when did you give yourself over to getting up at 5 a.m. every day? Yeah. Th-
1: 11 years old. I remember it. <laughs> I remember like, you know, setting my alarm and just being so excited because it was a kind of an honor to get into the group that had morning practice. Wow. And um, yeah, so I mean, and it's kind of crazy when I graduated from college, I did tell myself I was like, I am never, I'm, I'm going to sleep in, you know, I'm going to like start sleeping <laughs> in. And then of course I'm living in Atlanta and I realize Atlanta traffic is terrible and working out in the afternoon is, is rough, um, after a commute. And I think I lasted maybe a couple weeks before I was back at, at dynamo at the dynamo pool swimming in the morning.
0: <laughs> right on, right on. Um, yeah, I, I feel, I mean, you mentioned your coaches and your coaches making it fun. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Because I feel like so many, and correct me if I'm wrong on this, because you, you, you've spent more time around swimmers, obviously, than I have. I feel like so many swimmers finish up college, and they're just tired of getting up so early all the time. Um, and, and tired of, because you have to swim hard virtually every day, and, and having to swim so hard and put in that much effort. I feel like so many swimmers finish college and they're burned out, But but you're not. You still love swimming.
1: It it is a wild sport just because the volume of training is so much for the length of the events, right? Where I yeah. I was a mid distance swimmer, um, not even a distance swimmer. So I say I'm two hundred backstroke, four hundred IM, which are two minute to f- five minute events, you know, five hundred free. Like we're talking like now that I do Ironman, I'm like two minutes this is so short. Right. Um and but that was middle distance. And so to do that, you're probably training like you're in the water you know, up to 20 hours a week. And then you're also, um, you know, doing some strength training and dry land training as well. And that's just, I mean, that's a lot of volume for for even for very short events. You do swim multiple days. And so endurance does come into play when you're swimming prelims and finals and swimming, you know, NCAAs is three, three days long. And so that's actually like a lot of swims in three days. Um, so endurance is a part of it, even if you're a sprinter. But I think that that can wear you out. Um, it is a very all-encompassing sport. I mean, I think even at, at UGA, we people would joke about the swim team because we did everything together. And that was because our schedule was so different. We swam early in the morning and then we'd you know, go to class, maybe go to do strength go back to the pool, swim again, and we get out of swim practice at 5 p.m. We'd all go just rush to the dining hall. So you have all these people right. eating a ridiculous amount at 5 o'clock. <laughs> and I just thought 5 o'clock dinner was totally normal, <laughs> um, even in college. And then we're like, we're dead tired, you know, by 8 p.m. So it's not like we're doing much during the week. Um, And so I think that lifestyle, you know, it is a little bit different. But I always liked it just because I was around, you know, 30 to 50 people who were doing the exact same thing. I didn't really know anything different. And I think I've always just recognized the opportunities that swimming gave me. Um, again, I, I grew up in a pretty small town and I look back at how far I've come and it is I'm very, you know, it is, I'm very thankful for swimming. And I did have some, you know, so surprisingly good coaches in, in unexpected places. Um, Robin White was the coach when I first started doing morning practices and he, he was in Fort Collins, Colorado at the time, but now he actually lives in Savannah, Georgia. And, um, he, I just remember walking on deck at like 5am and he would just be like, Haley's here, everyone, you know, and to an 11 year old kid who's, you know, just, you know, excited and nervous about being in this group, to have the coach kind of welcome you like that, it really stuck with me. And he just made it seem like, hey, it's an honor to be here, to be working hard. And like I said, a lot of the, and it was my teammates too, a lot of the people I was around, they were working hard. And I think that that I've always been able to kind of find those groups. Um, even right after college, when I thought I was done swimming and I was like, okay, I'm going to like be a normal person and I'm going to be an accountant, like an extremely normal person. <laughs> and I, you know, it was my, um, one of my college roommates, brothers, he, uh, Convinced me to try Dynamo Masters, and I was like, "Ah, oh, I don't know." But you go there, and you know, there are days when Maria's like, "Hey, you're here, awesome!" You know, and she <laughs> made it this really welcoming environment. Even though in those early days, all I wanted to do was sprint—like all I wanted to do was sprint and talk—and that was—and she kind of let me, you know, those first like couple months, like a couple of us that were former collegiate swimmers, we came, we warmed up, we did a couple sprints and then we sat and chatted. We did a couple more sprints, we sat and chatted. And so I give Maria a lot of credit there too. And then eventually it kind of eased into like, okay, triathlon and okay, training for this and training for, you know, 1.2 mile swims and 2.4 mile swims and biking after that. And I gradually got more serious, but, um, again, and it, I can – I'm really good right now, I think, at not comparing my current self as a swimmer to my past self. And yeah. part of that is I was a backstroker and 400 im when I was, you know, at my peak in swimming. And right now the idea of doing a 400 IM, I mean, would be hilarious. <laughs> um, I think. Wait, in, you
2: mean you don't backstroke during the Ironman?
1: <laughs> oh, I would backstroke if I could. Mm-hmm. I was a very fast backstroker. I think my backstroke might have been – especially – I think I could do – definitely do a 2.4-mile backstroke. Probably – Almost as fast as I can freestyle. Um, if I could figure out, like, a way to... To see, um, to go in a straight line. <laughs> that I, uh, I would I could definitely do that. That would be a little bit. Yeah, I need a sighting. I don't know. Somehow, kind of. Sighting can can I up. be one
0: of the first people to encourage you to do that in your next Ironman, please?
1: <laughs> <laughs> I know I should do it one of these days. If I could figure out how to go in a straight line, I would. But um, I think that that's part of it was that I didn't do much freestyle. I actually didn't swim much freestyle in college. I swam a lot of backstroke, and mm. so kind of. I was able to kind of change things and now I'm doing more, you know, now I do a lot more freestyle, but I also, I mean, now I'm trying to hit my backstroke times when I do freestyle or even, you know, somewhat close to those. Um, and I swim a lot less now obviously than I used to. And, um, and now I just, I really enjoy it. And I'm really proud of myself because I have seen so many other people who kind of leave the sport and then maybe come back or they just, you know, are done with swimming. And I look back and I'm like, I am 11 years post-college now and I can still like, I spent five grand this morning like pretty, pretty well. So I kind of am really proud of that, you know, and it is a good sport for like your whole life. Right. When you talk about there's no impact, um, there's, you know, it's, you can be in a pretty safe environment. Um, and it's, you can you go to these masters meets and you see 90 year old swimming. So I think it is a really good sport. So I am glad that I do still love it.
0: Right on. Me, too. Me, too. So there's a story that that has been batted around uh, Atlanta triathlon circles. And I, I want to say I've, I've even read it on your blog um, or I know, you know, I read it on on Matthew's blog. Um, but uh, but it's about when, when you first met Matthew Rose, who's the founder of Dynamo Multisport and, and your coach and was my coach for a little while. Um, and uh, and that that he was swimming freestyle in the pool and he was a collegiate swimmer as well. And he kind of looked over at the lane next to him, and he's being lapped by someone doing backstroke. Yeah. Uh, and that and that was you. Um, and well, that's how I've, you first kind of came on his radar.
1: I think that was. I know. I am so lucky that I met Matthew, and it is one of those things where things just work out. But I think when I met him – so in 2008, I was actually – I was working for a public accounting firm, and and it was one of those things like – so um, the Olympic trials were happening in 2008, and I swam the Olympic trials in 2004, and – and I placed ninth in the 200 backstroke. So that was, you know, a really good result for me. And I graduated from college in 2007. So I would started working, but I still how ha- I still qualified previously for the Olympic trials. And I would qualified in the 200 backstroke at 4am. knew there was no way I was going to swim a 400am at Olympic trials. Um, but I was like, I think one of my bosses and Maria, they kind of found out that I had this qualifying time. They're like, you should go. You should definitely go. And at the time... I was, yeah,
0: I mean, it is the Olympic trials after all.
1: I know, but I was like, <laughs> I had gone from training, you know, 10 times a week, swimming 10 times a week to swimming like four and okay. for one hour where I would just go in Fair. and splash around and and I was like, oh no, this could be really bad. So um, that was what I was training for when Matthew met me was I actually did, um, I did swim in 2008 Olympic trials. I did not get last place. I actually... I was actually surprised at how well I did. I think I was like 30 seconds, and I was like, "Oh my gosh!" I go from swimming ten times a week as hard as I possibly can to like literally swimming five times a week, and I only go that much slower. I'm like, "This is not fair," but I think you hold on to it, you know, when you have that big of a base. But um, sure. it was, it made me, you know, that was fun. It was actually a really a fun time, and I actually did my first half. This was Haley pre pre coached. Haley did. Three marathons, a half Ironman, and a Olympic distance triathlon, and then two weeks later, I swam in the Olympic trials. That was Haley pre-coached. <laughs> that was why three
0: I, three running marathons, three
1: running marathons in in the in the like twelve months before before the Olympic trials. I did yeah, even two. I did I ran Boston in April, so I ran the Ing marathon or what was the Ing marathon? Is Georgia Marathon in March? Mm-hmm. Boston. I did Boston in April. Make and half rock and roll man in uh, May, West Point Olympic in end of May, and then June did Olympic trials. <laughs>
2: oh yeah, it was, okay, that feel, is not. The I feel way like to do now it. is the time for me to jump in and say, please do not try this at home, for all pleasant <laughs> podcast listeners. <laughs> right. That
1: was no. That is why I needed a coach, right? And then it is like, thankfully, Matthew was like. You know, in the lane next to me, and he was starting Dynamo Multisport, and I was like, "Hey, you know, maybe I can, maybe he'd coach me." And um, and I remember he was a little hesitant at first, and um, and then I was still <laughs> on my marathon binging at that time, and I ran. Part of this was my boss's fault, my public accounting boss. He was like, "You should do this one. You should do this one." And I was left so afraid of getting fired that I just said yes to everything. Um, so <laughs> half of those races were technically for work, um, and. Actually, all of them I think were for work. They were all with my boss, except for Olympic Trials. But um, so at that point, after I ran the I ran the Thanksgiving Day marathon in uh, Atlanta, and I actually ran a I think I ran a 3:23. So it was a decent time given my training. Time. I know I think I took mm. the CPA exam like the day before. It was just like I was crazy in my early 20s. I'm like, who is this person? But Matthew was like, hey, maybe maybe you might make a good triathlete and. Um, then he quickly pared down my racing schedule and I got a lot faster. Go figure.
0: Very good. Very good. That's kind of awesome. Actually. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I don't imagine there was anybody else in the 2008 Olympic trials in swimming that prepared for it by running three marathons. I know.
1: <laughs> right. Especially the Boston <laughs> marathon. I was, I was so impressed with my, you know, how old was I? Like 21, 22 year old self. I mean, I flew up there by myself. It was like, it was the most expensive weekend of my entire life. I just went for one night and I was so overwhelmed. And one of the cool things though, I was walking to the start line and I was just so overwhelmed. And I, I met sister Madonna and it was kind of one of those random things. And she was like much more calm than I was. And, and um, yeah, it was, I, again, yeah, don't try that at home. None of those marathons were exceptionally fast and, um, or any of the races. I also don't recommend doing a half Ironman the way I trained where you swim like you know, eight times a week and bike once and run twice. <laughs> that's not a good way. It makes for mm-hmm. a go backwards all day.
0: <laughs> all right, so then, so then that's 2008. Um, yes. But then, you, and and so you started transitioning. Kind of, I mean, you, you already you said you did Rock and Roll Man in 2008. So you're already, you know, triathlons on your radar. Um, and and you really start start getting ready. I mean, you you did Kona in 2009, and so you ended up kind of. I guess transitioning fully into being a triathlete fairly quickly, right?
1: Yes, I mean, I when I started triathlon, I knew I wanted to do an Ironman. I kind of thought I would be one and done, and I signed up for actually Ironman Florida and for 2009 Ironman Florida, and then I started working with Matthew Rose at in the beginning of 2009, and okay. um, my so my first like coached half was Gulf Coast and. I had a decent race there. I think I actually won my age group, but it was because, well, one of the other, I did get passed, but another athlete got a penalty. So I was, I celebrated (laughs) that anyway. And, um, and I was training with uh, one of our mutual friends, Betty Janelle at the time. And she went and did Hanu, the 70.3 in Hawaii, and actually qualified for Kona. And we had been training partners. And at that, and at that point where you could qualify in a half to go to Kona. And so she going to plan to train for Kona and Matthew was like, hey, why don't you go up to Rhode Island and do the half there back when they had a half there and see if you could win your age group and get a Kona slot and then you can train with Betty and go to Kona. So, you know, being 23 year old me who was, you know, i just eager to do everything and totally fearless. I said, sure, why not? You know, and I, uh, you know, got myself up to Rhode Island and did the race and won my age group and qualified for Kona. And then at that point, I had to figure out how to uh, pay for a trip to Hawaii, which uh, on my you know first year staff accounting salary was a little bit of a trick. I did you know I ended up borrowing some money, so um, you know and got got myself to Hawaii. And that first trip to Hawaii, I I had no idea what to expect. It was my first Ironman, my first time in Hawaii, um, just a lot of new. And you know from being at that race, it's It's unlike any, it's a very different race. It's a very different race. And um, I had a really, you know, I had a really great swim. I think I was first age group out of the water. Um, I think over the bike, the bike was solid and bike and run. But we can just say, I think there were 1,800 people in the race. And I think about 1,500 passed me (laughs) during (laughs) during the bike and swim portions. I was, it was like, is there anyone else left back there? Um, (laughs) But even when I was, you know, struggling on the run, I knew I would be back. It wasn't one of those things where I'm like, this was terrible. I was like, okay, I can learn from this. I can do better. I can figure some things out and I'm going to be back. And um, yeah, and I have been back a couple times since and done a little bit better. <laughs>
0: Yeah, for sure. Well then and then did you requalify when you went to Florida a month later in 2009?
1: So, thanks to having Matthew there, I did not do Florida. So I ended up not okay. doing Florida. He, you know, he understood that I was 24 at the time, probably not quite ready to be doing two Ironmans within a month. So I ended up not doing Florida. And I think my next Ironman was I did Ironman Louisville um, the okay. following August, and you know mm-hmm. did a little bit better. Um, you know I, I and I did go out qualify for Kona for 2010 as well. So I went as an age grouper. I went 2009, 2010, 2011, 2012. But it wasn't until and you, and
0: you were and you were the first age grouper out of the water all of those years.
1: I was yeah managed all those. But Matthew, when you said that you had a story about from Matthew, he will tell you about
0: when he beat you out of the water
1: yeah 2010 he like sat on my feet and ran around me and it was that was uh that was definitely uh he can't do that anymore
0: (laughs) (laughs) well didn't you slip going up the stairs and that's when he passed you
1: i did i slipped going up the steps and he was right behind me and he's sees the opportunity and throws his hands in the air with like number one which is it's a hilarious there's a picture out there of it actually with me flipping on the steps and him you know running by and it's kind of hilarious because it's age group triathlon it is a uh, you know late man in his late 30s and a you know a girl in her early 20s and you know he's celebrating and that's you know one hour into a 10 11 hour race (laughs) but i guess you take the victories when you can
2: Right on, right on. Now, a lot of our listeners, you know, uh, are are working adults, working professionals at accounting firms, uh, you know, big, you know, we have people working at, you know, banks, etc. And they're also trying to run their first marathon, run their first Ironman, maybe, you know, qualify for their first Boston or something of that nature. So tell us a little bit about some of the struggles that you had trying to, you know, train, you know, but also while holding down a job as an accountant. Because there's, you know, it's a little bit different than you know being at UGA, where, as you kind of described, your life revolves around swimming and around athletics. To having to juggle multiple hats, and so not just multiple hats, but multiple hats you have to take seriously with being a professional and being um, a serious athlete.
1: Yes. So I absolutely advocate for morning workouts, and I still do that now. But even, especially when I was, you know, working in a corporate environment, just because very rarely do you have Does anyone want your time at 5 a.m.? But things do always come up later in the day, and so I would always get myself up, and I always, almost always do, if I have multiple workouts, I would do my key session in the morning before work, because I just think, you know, it, it one, it sets the tone for your whole day. You feel a little bit better about yourself. You know, I think it just, you know, keeps me on a better routine where I go to bed earlier, um and you know eat a good breakfast and i just found that that was the key um working in public accounting i did have a busy season during tax season so january february march were kind of i mean even i raced pro while working and with matthew i mean we talked and i was like i can only do singles during that time like i can only do one workout a day and i was just pretty honest with myself and with my coach that that was the time that i had during you know those 3 months and so I did. I got myself up in the morning and I did my workout and then I went to work and, you know, I might have been at work till late in the evening, but, um, you know, made sure I got myself, tried to get myself to bed as soon as early as I can and got myself up the next day for that workout. So I think that that was one of my keys. Um, I think, you know, sometimes having that corporate job and having those kind of, you know, those just kind of constraints on your time can make you a more productive athlete I have always ridden the trainer a lot. Um, I ride it a lot now, but I even rode it, you know, just as as long as I've been doing triathlon. And that was one of the things Matthew really introduced to my training when I um, first started was trainer workouts or, you know, now there's so many smart trainers, kickers and um Tassics has one and Cyclops. I mean, there's just so many different kinds of smart trainers and people have power meters and that makes sense. Indoor workouts are super efficient, super time efficient, especially if you can do them at home and you know knock it out. And if it's an hour and a half, it's an hour and a half, and that sort of um, you know can just be really time efficient. And then it is also like, I would if I did want to try to do an afternoon workout, I would never go home first. I would bring my clothes with me to work and you know change and then go run or change and then you know go to the pool. I think when you go home, you get distracted. You have Laundry, you have, you know, you're hungry, and there's just so many other things that can, you know, take up your time. And all of a sudden it's, you know, nine o'clock at night. So I think just kind of planning things out that way and, and then being kind to yourself when life gets in the way and you can't do it. I mean, you can't be perfect, but you can be as consistent as possible. So whether you're making your own plan or working with a coach, just, you know, if something comes up, you deal with life first because that's ultimately more important.
0: Right on, right on. Well, let's. I mean, I want to. I want to get back to the to the, the chronology of your becoming more than a swimmer and kind of morphing into triathlete and then becoming a full blown triathlete. But, but I, I, I want to circle back first to something you just talked about with the indoor training and all that sort of thing. Um, can you talk to us a little bit about now that you're a pro? So, so when you were an accountant and you were having to kind of squeeze in all that the the early morning workouts and the, the stuff you just described how is your life different now that you're living in Bozeman and you're a pro triathlete? How does that change the nature of your training and your training schedule?
1: Yeah, so I left my public accounting job in 2013. So it was about five years ago. And that was really, really hard for me. Um, I didn't realize like how much of my social life and the structure of my life came from work. And people think it sounds like amazing but i actually really struggled and so for the first couple months i almost kept uh you know i still did really early morning training and um evening training and kind of just had weird free time and i felt it was just really hard so it kind of has evolved over the years where i've talked to you know matthew and like how do i become more professional about this like I can take a nap and not feel bad about it because I would before because I'm like, I should be doing something more productive. Um, and now I'm much more at peace with my, you know, with my routine. I do still swim in the morning because I think that, one, it's the swimmer mentality and also pool hours are often really hard. Um, that is something that I know. I also coach and I know a lot of my athletes do struggle with pool hours. I struggle with pool hours. I was pretty spoiled in Atlanta at Dynamo because the lap swimming hours there were pretty, um, you know, they had quite a variety of them, but the best pool hours, at least here in Bozeman are in the morning. And I also love swimming with people. So most of my, you know, my training partners have regular jobs, um, or, you know, somewhat regular jobs. And so if I want to swim with someone, I have to swim in the morning. Um, just, they can't go at 10 AM, you know, they're at work and I would prefer to swim with someone who can push me than to do it on my own at 10 AM when I, you know, might not get as big of, you know, just be able to go as fast. Um, probably the biggest change is that I, I, I will sleep in occasionally. um, And, you know, I'm saying at past 5 a.m., I still like to skew my days earlier. I'm just a morning person. But I don't like to run in the dark as much anymore. Um, That's kind of a definitely, I used, when I worked, I was, you know, I remember days when I would meet someone to run at 4 a.m. to get in a long run before work. And I would not do that now unless there was some, you know, major reason I had a flight or something. So, I kind of ditched the headlamp running. Um, I'm able to kind of schedule my runs a little bit more where I'm running in the daylight, which is just nice because I do ride inside quite a bit. And um, I'm sure we'll talk about this a little bit, but I was hit by a car in 2015, which did did shock me a lot and did change my training in a lot of ways and while I will ride out I do ride outside occasionally I do probably the bulk of my training probably at least 70 percent of my training indoors on the trainer and like I said I've always done that I've always done a lot of interval workouts on the trainer just because again you can do it regardless of weather time of day Um, you can be really focused in your efforts you're not worried about stop signs you're not worried about you know road conditions anything like that I think it is a excellent training tool for everyone. But now I, you know, I do have a level of anxiety about riding on the road. And so I do, you know, certain rides, I just prefer to do indoors, even long ones. And I don't mind the trainer, I think, I think my cycling has actually gotten much better over the last couple years and doing mostly indoor training. So Um, so that is one reason why I do try to get outside for running though, but I run a lot on trails here. Um, not as much on the road as I used to a lot on trails. And, um, luckily I have some non-technical trails around here because in Montana, you can get some very steep technical (laughs) trails and I'm not quite at that level yet.
2: Right on. Very good. Very good. So, uh, if you don't mind me asking, so you, you talked about the crash, um, did you change your habits immediately after the crash? Tell us a little bit about how you, you kind of got to where you are now in terms of riding indoors or, or kind of the habits that you have now. Um, you know, maybe like, was it a gradual process or was it kind of an, an instant shock, so to speak?
1: So I was hit um, three weeks before Kona. So it was in 2015. and I was training for the Ironman World Championships and I was probably, I was in the best shape of my life. And it was a very unfortunate thing. And, um, most of my injuries were to my lower leg. So I, I was okay, but I, I did, um, you know, I had some severe lower leg injuries. I, I would say at first I was like, I'm fine. I'm fine. You know, this is going to be no big deal. But after Kona happened, like after that race, I kind of just like, I went into a really big funk and I really definitely, I struggled with whether I even wanted to continue with triathlon. I looked back at my past life in public accounting, and there was a lot less risk involved. And I was like, this never happened in my previous job, you know, that just because someone wasn't paying attention, I end up in the back of an ambulance. You know, this was – it was really hard for me, and I actually really struggled – even just going outside, like being a pedestrian, um, because I just made me realize, I was like, oh my goodness, a car can just come up on the sidewalk and hit me at any moment. And so a lot of it was fairly irrational, and they are just like things that go through life, you know, you go through life and you have to take some risks. But for several months, I I didn't, or at least a month, I couldn't get myself to drive a car, which I know sounds really crazy, but I was staying at my parents' house, and I would just get physically sick every time I got behind the wheel of a car which cuz I had these nightmares about me hitting people and you know I thought every oncoming car was going to hit me so the psychological you know the psychological effects of the accident were actually probably a lot more profound and harder to recover from even than the physical um the physical you know injuries and I did work with a therapist and that helped a ton um just because these were like you know these are very traditional like you know, brain things that you can work on. And there are, you know, and that was, I was really, really thankful that I had people who, you know, reached out and were like, Hey, talk to someone. And, um, and it did, it helped. I got to where I was driving again. And initially I talked to Matthew and I said, I don't want to ride outside ever again, outside of races. You know, I came to the conclusion that I do want to race again, but I don't ever want to ride outside. And, he was really, you know, receptive of that. And he's like, okay, like we'll figure out how to do this. And I give him a lot of credit because it was kind of shocking. Like he had worked with me for, you know, six years at that point And, and it was his loss too, you know, for him to be a coach and have an athlete going to Kona in with, you know, potential top 10 finish opportunities, and then have that taken away by that accident. It was hard for him as well. And, um, and so Gradually, like I did, so I made that decision that I would only ride indoors, and I did that probably for, you know, for several months, probably six or six to nine months. I only rode indoors. Um, My first, I did, you know, it took me a year to get on another start line for a race. And at that point, I don't think I had ridden outside at all. Um, I did Coeur 70.3 and I wasn't ready. Um, I had only run, you know, I think my longest run had been eight miles. So running a half marathon 13, 13 miles was a, was a big ask. Um, but it was one of those things I needed it for me. Like I, it was close to me. I had moved to Montana at that point. And it was close. And I just wanted to tell myself I could still finish a race. And so I knew I wasn't ready, but I wanted to tell myself I could still finish a race. I, I did freak out a little bit on the bike. Um, that course is mostly – it's there's a closed lane, but there's cones and there's a cars on the other side. And it was a little bit hard for me, but I kept myself in a really good headspace. I was like, you – I'm so proud of myself for getting on a start line and for getting out on the road and doing this race again. And so that was – I think I finished eighth. I, I was doing pretty well, probably about until eight miles into the run, and then I had a very big blow up just from lack of training, but um, but I finished, and it was really emotional for me, but it was also really empowering that I, I did finish another race, and that entire season in 2016, I only did three races, but I I was really proud of myself for each of them, and I, I each one I thought might be my last, but... I, um, you know, I just, I, I got myself out there and each one got a little bit better, and, um, and then I kind of got this cool idea where I would just do races in places that I wanted to go to. You know, I was gonna, like, I'm going to do one more year in this sport and I'm just going to go wherever I want to go. And so I went to Iceland. I did Challenge Iceland. I went to Pucón, Chile and, um, did the race there, which is incredible. I went to Argentina. I went to China. Um, I, I really did a round the world tour. I went to Brazil and all of a sudden I started racing really well in 2017. And, I also started realizing that I I liked riding a bike again, and I liked being outside, and I liked being around these people, and that got me to go outside more in training. You know, I I made some friends in Bozeman, and I figured out a route that was fairly safe, and even now, I really only ride – two routes out of here unless i drive to you know a different place um because i like how the traffic flow is on them i like how the sun is you know at certain times of the day i like how you know i i kind of just i feel more in control with those i ride with a crazy amount of lights on my bike i wear neoprene hot pink booties year round i only wear bright kits Um, I am sponsored by smash Fest queen. If they send me a kit that isn't bright colors, I'm like, I will wear this indoors, but I can't wear it outside. And I don't know if those things necessarily would have prevented my accident, but I think, or crash, I shouldn't say that word, not accident, but, um, (laughs) I, uh, that's like the number one rule in, in bike crashes, especially when the car car collisions, the crash, not an accident. But I, um, I don't know if it would have prevented that, but I, it can't hurt, you know, it can't hurt. And so I am happy that I get outside again. Again, I still ride a lot indoors, and and that's for ton, for efficiency, um, for training purposes. And I do get anxious every once in a while, but you know, for the most part, I think you know it doesn't affect my everyday life quite as much. I I, I did move to Montana. A part or a big reason was because of driving. Um, I drive a lot less here. I can you know walk to a lot of places. I can bike commute, which for some reason you know that's easier for me than driving even sometimes and um and with time things have gotten a lot easier mm-hmm.
0: for sure yeah i you know it's 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 interesting for me obviously because i was run over what two months before you were something like that yeah um, and, and and actually you're getting run over i think is what ended my triathlon career <laughs> and and that's not to guilt trip you in any way but 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 i was still kind of on the fence a little bit i was like well am i, am I going to do it again i don't know and then you got run over i was like nope no, I'm I'm not going to do it anymore. Because, because suddenly to me, it started to feel even more inevitable. Um, Yeah.
1: It's, I mean, it was, a. I mean, your crash, it was similar where, I mean, not similar, but it's just, you guys were doing everything right. And I think that that is what scared me the most is that we were being pretty, you know, we were being pretty cautious already. And it was just like, wow, that can still happen. But it's, And obviously your situation is is different um, than mine and, and, you know, everyone's. And so it's, you know, each person kind of has to make their own decision with how they're going to deal with that. But I I don't fault you at all. Like, I mean, it's one of those things like being that hurt. You don't ever want to be that hurt ever again. And you realize it could have been even worse. And you're like, that was so bad. I don't want to see what worse could be. But it has changed my driving a lot. I don't know if you, you know, that has changed anything for you, but I am... A much more cautious driver in general and just i i definitely am a more outspoken advocate for bike safety um around Boston. and a lot of people you know bike commute and even when people on bikes break the law i still am like it's not worth dying for you know it's not worth they shouldn't die because of that and so i'm like cars should should pay attention and should be looking out for cyclists and pedestrians um especially in you know pedestrian heavy traffic areas just because it's you know you're in a Multi, you know several thousand pound vehicle, there's a responsibility that comes with that.
0: Yeah um, a, a few things I want to uh, say um, and, and to kind of circle around. One is that, that y'all did a really good interview on your podcast on the Iron Women podcast about two or three months ago um, with the cycling lawyer from Colorado. Um, Megan, what was her name? Megan
1: Hotman. Yes, she's fantastic. Yeah, Megan Hotman.
0: Yeah, and she was great. And and the stuff she talked about um, around just like bike safety and just sort of simple safety habits, I thought was fantastic. I really, really liked that a lot. So, yeah, we're going we're gonna to plug your podcast several more times, I imagine, between now and the end of our conversation. Um, but but uh, for anybody who has a particular interest in bike safety and, and the laws around bikes uh, and riding bikes outside, that's a particularly good interview that y'all did. I really liked that one a lot. Um, I thought it was cool. Um, the other thing I was thinking um, was that you um, I remember you—you you were talking. I remember talking with you a few days after um, you were run over. That, that the EMT was putting you in the back of the ambulance and he was trying to calm you down a little bit. And he said something to the effect of, "So, tell me, what do you do? What's your job, or something like that?" And you went, "This. This is my job." Um, <laughs> and. <laughs> And I wonder, um, you know, you answered one of my questions a minute ago about, about moving back to Bozeman in part because of, of bike safety and all that sort of thing, um, which was something I had always kind of wondered about. Um, but but, to what degree did the fact that this was your job kind of play into to, to it coming back for you? Because um, the, the, you said you thought about leaving triathlon, but, you I mean, you had made a lot of sacrifices in order to go pro back in 2013. So, I mean, mm-hmm. did, did that play in?
1: Oh, of course. I mean, when I was, like hurt, I definitely one of um, my old bosses actually texted me and, you know, and he was he was like, hey, if you need to come back to work, like, well, you know, we'd love to have you back, which was at this, you know, simultaneously like the nicest thing someone could say to me, and also like, oh man, am I done? You know, and I wasn't ready to go back to public accounting. It was, um, you know, I. I I was that day, you know, that morning, I did feel like I was in the best shape of my life, especially the best cycling shape. And, and so it, it was really hard because it was so much, I just felt like it was a lot of lost opportunity. Um, if, you know, and it, you, when you use your body for, you know, your career for athletics, you know, you have a timeline, you know, that this won't go on forever. And that was part of my decision to go pro was that I knew I could not be an 80 year old professional triathlete, or that would be very impressive. Um, but <laughs> I could be an 80 year old accountant, you know, I probably, you know, if I sell my wits with me or 60 year old or 70 year old accountant, you know, that's not out of the norm, and so I knew I had this timeline of, you know, pretty much like my 30s when I could, you know, be at my best physically, and so to have that kind of, you know, this big roadblock in that um, being super hurt um, was was really hard, and I am thankful that I had, you know, I have a bit of a safety net when the people around me who who gave me time. Um, like I talk about with Matthew, um, I mean, it was hard for him and he did, he gave me time. He did not, he did not pressure me to get into another race. I was the one that was like, I want to do another race. And again, like if I had gone to Coeur d'Alene and I had finished that and I had been like, okay, I'm done. He would have been like, okay, you know, it's been a great run. Congratulations. And that was important to me. I just wanted to finish another race. And, um, and then when I finished, I was like, okay, maybe I can still get better. And I think that, you know, that happens whether you've been hurt or whether you haven't, a lot of the times in triathlon, it's always about like, you know, can I do something a little bit better? Like maybe if I tweak this, I could do a little bit better. And that's what keeps us coming back. And so I did sort of, I started setting, you know, started setting like new PRs, like post crash PR, like that was my best post crash run, my longest post crash run. Um, and so I think those kind of things, I, I let myself do that. And again, I gave myself a year, you know, and if after a year, I still, you know, after I did Coeur d'Alene, if after a year, I still, you know, was really struggling and not really into it, I would have, you know, done something else because I am the kind of person that I do feel like I could do other things and still be very fulfilled. And I don't necessarily need, um, you know, all the athletics, even though athletics have been a really big part of my life, I don't think I, you know, need them always. Um, I will always be exercise and always try to be physically fit, but, um, to the level I am now, I don't always, but luckily one year later, I actually went back to Coeur d'Alene and I won the race,
0: which was yeah, you did
1: incredible. It was so unexpected and it was, it was amazing. It was, it was a really cool day.
0: And then you won it again in 2018.
1: I did. I won it this year, which was it's a really special race to me just because a lot of people from Bozeman race there. It's kind of our hometown race and the course does definitely suit me. Um just with long sustained climbs like that and um a cold swim and I I love it and like even winning this year, I'll I never ever take any finish or especially a really strong finish for granted. That is something that has changed, you know, I think since the crash. One, I, I try really hard never to get down on myself for a bad performance because I realize how how cool it is that I am back racing because I didn't need to. And so anytime, even if I'm out there having the most terrible day, I'm like, you know what, this is still a cool day in your life and you're still out here doing this. And, and then when I have those good days, I celebrate extra hard.
0: Right on. Yeah, that, that's that's a good finish line to celebrate as well I, I did Ironman Coeur d'Alene in 2012 uh-huh. and, and I, I still think that's the that's the best finish line you have that 600 meters downhill down Sherman Avenue with people on both sides of the street cheering for you and you can see the finish line so far away it's a great one it yeah. is the
1: downhill finish is is really nice <laughs> that is right on. that is really nice and Coeur a great great town I mean it's 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 beautiful, and then you have it's all touristy. So you have all the good restaurants and stuff, and you can go get you know ice cream afterwards. It's it's a nice place for a race.
0: Right on, right on, very good. Um, so so you had both those wins there. You did. Um you did a couple of Ironmans this year too. You did a really interesting one. I want to say in in it was Ironman Maastricht. Is that what it was called?
1: That's how I pronounce it. Yeah. So it's in the Netherlands. <laughs> it was a very interesting one because you're in the Netherlands and in Belgium. So it's and it's not flat. Everyone it, it, in it falls
0: into that you know racing in cool places. Uh, yeah. uh, you know, <laughs> I uh, know. I have
1: cool. I have done a little bit of a uh, some trotting Yeah, over the last couple of years for sure. I've been you know it's been awesome and. And Maastricht was it was a fun one. I mean, it's definitely very different course than anything you would find in the U.S. or Canada. Um, the bike course was extremely technical, which does not suit me at all, given that I uh, ride mostly indoors. But I was really proud of myself for how I handled it. I will say there were these things called bike bridges that I don't know if they'll still continue to have, but they basically built a uh, like a bridge they built a bridge out of scaffolding and particle board to go over roads so that they didn't have to like stop traffic and it was terrifying i mean they're really high if you think about a bridge high enough yeah. like on scaffolding to have cars go underneath um that was a little bit terrifying i i hope that they don't continue to do that because i think if it rained it would have been a disaster but i handled it okay and the course is completely closed so i do i do give shout outs definitely to races that have closed courses because that is something that, you know, I, I struggle with sometimes, you know, if a, re- if a course isn't closed, um, you know, just it, it's, it adds a level of anxiety to me. And I am like, should I put my lights on my bike for this race to make sure yeah. that, you know, the cars see you, especially when you're in the pro field and you're out in the front, like they're not necessarily expecting you. And there's a big enough gap between you and the other competitors that cars, you know, might do something that they shouldn't. so, um, Like
0: Matt Russell last year in Kona. Yeah, which
1: is a closed course, but that shouldn't happen. I mean, that should not have happened. Like, I'm so glad that I didn't, I can't imagine if watching it happen. And I did come up later and saw the fire truck and I didn't really put anything together until I finished the race. But that is tragic. Like, that is so tragic. And I'm so happy to see him back racing and doing so well this year. But that is, that should not happen. Like, there's just no, no excuse. It's a world championship and it's a closed course. Like, how does that happen?
0: Yeah, yeah. Um, so speaking of like Ironman, Maastricht and, and Kona and all that sort of thing. Um, and this will kind of segue into, to, I know another topic that, that you care very deeply about and that we care about a great deal as well. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and that's, you know, getting into Kona and who gets into Kona and all that sort of thing. Um, and so, so you raced Ironman Maastricht, you raced another Ironman this year as well too, right?
1: I raced Ironman Brazil. Yes. In May.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And you've, um, you've done, you've done really well in Ironman Brazil in, in the past, right?
1: Yes, I've placed, i finished, I think, fifth, third, fourth, fifth, and sixth now, or something like that. I've hit all, all right, those. Very and good. I, Yeah, so I've, I've been around that one a lot.
0: Very good, very good. Um, but nonetheless, you didn't quite qualify for Kona this year as a pro, right?
1: That's right. I did. I think I've finished, like, well, I was three spots out. So mm-hmm. right now, the Kona qualification is by points. So you collect points over a 12-month period, and the beginning of that qualification was actually 70.3 Worlds in 2017, which I did fantastic at that race. and um, finished, ninth. Yeah, ninth in Chattanooga. Yeah. And, so that set me up pretty well for, for Kona qualification for 2018. But I just wasn't quite able to get enough points. I finished, um, yeah, three spots out. And so, like you mentioned about the equality for Kona, they do still take 50 pro men and only 35 women. And this is, you know, it's been something we've been fighting for for years. And we've heard every excuse in the books from, from Iron Man to there's not enough spot on the pier. Meanwhile, they add another 200 age group slots since You know, 2015, I think when this was first coming up um, to, you know, it's better for the pro women if there are fewer, which, um, you know, just because the argument is
0: obnoxious.
1: Yeah. Well, the argument is that since they only pay top 10, if there's only 35, like your odds of getting, you know, a paycheck are better. But it's
0: like the WTC version of mansplaining. I mean, really? Yeah. It's 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 exactly. Haley Chur and the rest of the female athletes. We know what's best for you.
2: Yeah. So So, well, so
0: trust us. You only want thirty-five. We know what's best for you, Haley.
1: Not, yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Not. And what I want is to see the best performances in Kona. Like I think that, um, you know what we've seen with seventy-point-three worlds. So last year at seventy-point-three worlds, they did have equal slots for men and women, fifty and fifty, and then also this year in South Africa, they had fifty and fifty, and the women's racing was not watered down. I mean, there weren't a bunch of women way in the back that shouldn't have been there. Like if anything last in 2017, we had one of the final qualifiers was Sarah true who ended up in fourth place this year. One of the final qualifiers was Lucy Charles who ended up in second place. So you can't say (laughs) that these people who are qualifying in these last spots are watering down the field. Um, I also, I also come from a, you know, accounting background, the business background. And if I am a sponsor and I want my product in Kona. Who am I going to sponsor, the number 50 man or the number 38 woman? I'm going to sponsor the number 50 man, you know, because he's going to be in Kona. And so I think that even though they say it doesn't cost us money because the prize money is still equal, it does. I have yeah. skipped Kona, won an Ironman, and lost sponsors, because I wasn't in Kona. So it does happen that way. And that is how our sport is right now. So it does have an effect on earnings as well. And I'm still I am hopeful that they will change it. And when they do, I will celebrate it. You know, and it isn't necessarily about me, but it's for the future. And I hope that, you know, five years down the road, you guys are doing this podcast and you're interviewing someone and you maybe you bring it up and they're like, oh, I didn't even know. You know, and I hope that's the case because they're just like, oh, it's always been equal. Right. You know, and that's that's my like dream that they don't even have to know, you know, that you're interviewing some woman and she's just like, oh, of course, it's equal. Travel always been equal because that's I hope we'll get to that point.
0: Well, the the other thing that stands out to me, and and I'd love to hear what you have to say about this, about the argument that WTC or that the company that owns Ironman uh, actually makes about why they don't make the slots equal is because they say, well, we have more men who compete than women. Mm -hmm. Um, There there are more men in the sport than women, ergo, we should have more pro spots, which on its face kind of makes sense. But the problem is that, that, that... they they in in saying that or in arguing that they're ignoring the fact that if you have more pro women, i.e. you showcase more women doing this sport, that will bring more women into it. Um, and and to to me, it's really it's really kind of abdicating their responsibility to grow the sport. Um, to say, oh well, you know, the sport, the women's sport, it's it's too small. And if it was bigger, you know, then then we'd have more women. If you had more women, it would be bigger.
1: <laughs> right. Exactly i mean every every pro is kind of a hero in their hometown, right, and so and also what you see is a lot of age group women who are very fast not taking their pro slots because they want to go to Kona so they just choose not to race pro because they get to you know go to Kona if they race age group and so you have i mean that's another you know a whole other issue, but it is it is fascinating, and you realize when you travel to other countries that it's, it's even worse in other countries where I talked to one woman who actually lived in Augusta, Georgia for a while, and now she lives in Europe. And, and she said, you know, she's like, it's so different in Europe, like women think that they need to be in their best shape ever. And men think that they need to be in their best shape ever before they even try a half Ironman or an Ironman. And she's like, in the US, it's kind of like everyone just kind of does it and just like, oh, let's just see how it goes. And so you get all these different ages and all these different body types. And I think that I know that one year my sister came and watched me at Ironman Texas and she watched the race and she was like, Oh my gosh, this isn't just a bunch of super fit people. Like she's like, there are people in their sixties and seventies and you know, all different shapes and sizes of people. And and she actually said, you know what? Like maybe I'll do an Ironman someday. Like I could, like I don't need to like be where I'm going to try to win it. Like sometimes it's just about, you know, winning for yourself. And so I think that, you know, the, maybe those attitudes are changing and, in Coraline, I will say this year they did make a big point, and I made a big point that there were as many pro women on the start line as there were pro men, and so we are seeing that, you know, and and um and you know so that argument is is ringing less true, and and if Ironman is all about you know, making money, you can look at, like, there's a big portion of the population there that they're missing, you know, and, um and look at running. I mean, now running has more women than they do men. I mean, if what if what if we said, okay, there are more women now who run than men, so for the Olympic team, we're going to send three women and only two men, you know, to the Olympics yeah. because, men, you got to go get more age group men to run before we're going to send three people to the Olympics. I mean, if you put the argument right. on the other way, it's ridiculous.
0: Absolutely. Yeah. The New York City Marathon announces next week that they're only going to pay 10 deep in the men's field and they're going to pay 15 deep in the women's field because there's more women competing in the New York City Marathon than men.
1: Right. Yeah. Can you
0: imagine if they said that? I mean, you know... The president would tweet about it. I mean, it's, <laughs> yeah. it's just you know, it's it, yeah. it, 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 it's it's unconscionable. But but yet it's it's exactly what we're doing in in the other direction. Mm-hmm. But anyway, anyway. So um, with that in mind, so so I know that that um, women's equity and women's uplift. Um, I mean, I, I feel like that's become a bigger part, or maybe it always was, but that's become a bigger part of of um, of your. Uh, focus over the course of the last few years, and I think that Smashfest Queen is part of that. I think Iron Women is probably part of that as well. Can you talk a little bit about that?
1: Yes, that is definitely something I've evolved into as I've you know gotten older and kind of just learned more and read more. and And I'm not like slighting my former self because you only know what you what you you know you know. But I've definitely learned a lot more, and that kind of started with that whole 50 Women to Kona movement and. It's like, wait a second, this isn't right. And then I kind of look back on my public accounting career and I'm like, even the things that I did, you know, I'm like, that wasn't right. Like, I shouldn't have done that. And, um, and you can't go back and change the past, but you can change what you're doing now and you can change your future actions. So now... I am I'm very involved with um with the Iron Women podcast which is uh, the podcast that I co-host with a fellow pro triathlete Alyssa Gadeski and we our goal is to bring more media attention to professional female you know mostly triathletes and also other endurance athletes um, just because we do feel like there's a lack of of women in media, you know, just media attention on women. So we're like, let's become the media. Let's bring that attention because that's something we can do. And so we do, you know, a lot of interviews with both top, you know, top women in the sport, but then also these women who kind of just, you know, you don't hear their stories and they have really fascinating stories that just kind of like go under the radar a little bit. And it's so fun when you get to do like someone's first ever podcast. And they're really nervous and it's like, hey, there's only one way to get better. You just got to do it and get, you know, get out there and put, you know, try it and then you're going to get better. And and so that's also kind of, I think, something that I didn't expect to come out of the podcast that has. Um, you mentioned we also interview people in the community like the cyclist lawyer and we've done some, you know, podcasts with Jennifer Farr-Davis about, you know, setting FKTs and um, our fastest known times on the Appalachian Trail. And we have um, Stacey Sims who talks about women's physiology. So there is a women's slant, but a lot of men listen as well, just because it's, you know, it's interesting information and really good stories. And I've definitely enjoyed that. And then Smash Fest Queen is, it's sponsored the podcast and also one of my personal sponsors. It's a women's apparel company and um, they also make some men's apparel, but Hilary Biscay and Michelle Landry started that um that sport and Hillary was one of my my idols in in professional triathlon when I was an age grouper and so getting to kind of work with her is just you know it's a pinch me kind of uh you know situation but Hillary you know they they set out to kind of make a really good product for women you know in triathlon cycling kits and and this is something I I appreciate because after wearing many unisex dynamo kits for many years and cringing at just my pictures I think I had one friend that you know she's like you look like you're wearing really tight basketball shorts because <laughs> the shorts would come down my knees and you know and it, it doesn't matter you can wear whatever when you're out there and no one really looks good in an Man. Ironman but, um, but it is there is something about liking what you're wearing that is empowering. And then just the people you meet through, through all of that. And then I do like the bright colors. Like I mentioned before, I, um, you know, I only ride outside in really bright colors and just, you know, it gives me a little peace of mind. So I, I'm appreciative of that as well.
0: Right on. Very cool. Very cool. Um, so with that in mind, I'm, it's funny hearing you talk about Hillary Biscay, uh, and Alyssa Gadeski, uh, cause, uh, My wife, when she was an amateur triathlete, she was on the amateur Rev3 triathlon team. Yeah. Um, And Hilary Biscay was sponsored by by Rev3, and so she was on the Rev3 pro team. And then Alyssa Godeski was, was, uh, I think, was on that amateur team with Rev3. But I remember reading Alyssa's um, blog the day that she mailed her pro application. Uh-huh. Um, and, and she was like, and, and I, I don't know why this stands out to me so much. I think it's because I thought it was just so cool that she was doing it. Um, but but she was taking that, she was rolling the dice, kind of like what you were just talking about. Um, but she said that, that uh, it was the same day that the, the song Brave was released. And so uh-huh. she's like, all right, I'm, so I'm, g- I'm going to be brave, and I'm going to mail this, and I'm going to do it. And she's done it. I think it's great. Um, I think it's fantastic. So, yeah.
1: It uh, is. Cool. And I admire, I mean, that is something that I've, as I've gotten older and I've gotten more in this sport, I just admire everyone on the start line. And I do especially admire people who race pro, um, you know, just because it is scary and it's hard and there is, you know, it's hard to go compete with a Daniela reef on a, uh, you know, uh, a yeah. Miranda Carfrey, you know, and, and just because they are, you know, so outstanding and, but it is a great way to kind of just measure yourself against the best. You can kind of do that in the age group ranks, but there's nothing like starting on the same starting line at the exact same time as them. And, and I don't think you have to measure yourself as your success has to be. I beat Rini or I beat Daniela. I think you can just use them as, you know, this benchmark of what's possible. And then also just like, be like, Hey, last time I was 30 minutes behind Daniela. This time I was 28 minutes. (laughs) Maybe speaking from uh, last year in Kona, I did, I rode uh, with Daniela through mile 30 of the bike. And I was just so proud of myself the whole time. I, I didn't have a full race, but I was like, Hey, you know what? You hung with her for 30 miles. Not many people can say that. So there's definitely, I mean, you can measure your success in many different ways. And I think you just have to be like really proud of yourself for, for giving it a go because it's scary and it's hard. You do have to be brave.
0: Right on. So let's talk a little bit about Kona then. Uh, so Kona's coming up in about a month, uh, less than a month. Um, And uh, and in our podcast next weekend, we're going to talk a little bit about previews for it and people who are coming in and all that sort of thing. But we want to take advantage of the fact that we have a pro with us who has raced Kona as a pro and, of course, as an age grouper as well to to talk a little bit about Kona. Um, So two things I I hope you'll you'll talk about with us. Number one, um, the women's race, as you just kind of described, um, over the course of the past few years has become more of a head-to-head type race, uh, it seems like, um, that, that... The men kind of did it first, and then two or three years later, the women kind of feel like followed, too, um, Mm -hmm. such that that, um, the race is less about kind of, you know, racing against yourself and trying to do your own best time and all that sort of thing. And actually, it's it's truly like Um, head-to-head. You try and hang on to Daniela Reef as long as you possibly can or something else like that. Mm -hmm. Um, And so... Um, can you talk a a little bit about what it's like to race as a pro in Kona and how different that is uh, racing as an age grouper and then at the same time maybe give us a couple predictions for how you think this year is going to unfold
1: yes so um yeah so racing as a pro in Kona is very different um it's is you can end up by yourself if you are having a not so good day, which I don't think you can in the age group race, it's pretty packed and you're almost always, you know, with people, but my strength is my swim. My swim is a strength. And so I'm usually toward the front, um, which is a big advantage in Kona um, to be toward the front coming out of the water. Um, Just from a psychological standpoint of, Getting on the bike course earlier, sometimes from a wind standpoint, because the winds can pick up later in the day, um, so that can be an advantage. And then, also, yeah, and also just for who you get to be around, because as you mentioned, the women's field has gotten a lot deeper, and. The, now we do see groups forming, Um, you know, not as many not as big as the men's because there aren't as many women out on the course, but it is, you know, there is more of a tactical part and there is something psychologically easier about riding when you can see people, you know, when you can like see people, Um, you know, to kind of pace off of so. I, you know, I think we do. I mean, Daniela's swim has gotten better. Last year, I didn't have my best swim ever. I came out of the water third. And I had, I was struggling the first like seven miles we were going, going through town. But when Daniela, Sarah Crowley, and um, Annabelle Luxford came by me, just as we got in the Queen K, I was able to stay with them. And that was, you know, it was really fun. It was, you know, it was, it was really cool. And um, I did get spit off, you know, around mile 30. But it was, um, it was still cool. And then you kind of wait for the next group to come up. So you kind of like conserve your energy and you wait for the next person to come by. And then you're like, okay, put in a surge, see if you can hang with them. So that's kind of a lot of what, what the racing is, um, you know, especially on the bike, just because there is such a benefit to being around people. Um, and so, uh, and then the run is very much, I mean, you've done that run. It's it's hot, it's really hard, you are, you know, making sure that you get your nutrition and you get fluids in and you are hanging on for dear life. It's a wild race, right? Because you get these pressures of just going for it and you see people blow up, like you don't see it any other race because it is the world championship. You see people just going for it. I mean, in the men's side and the women's side, we've seen people leading the race and then all of a sudden they are sitting on the side of the road, you know, and it's just, it's a fascinating race. So that being all said, I think my picks, if I can uh, – my picks for the women's field, which I'm a little bit more – I know a little bit better. Um, I, it's hard to pick against Daniela with the years that she's had. Um, you know, it's like a, she wasn't – we weren't – I when I was hanging on with her, I wasn't riding crazy. I was not riding like 300 watts trying to keep with Daniela. I was riding a pretty reasonable pace. Um, so – but this year, you know, her, her performances have been – just off the charts. And um, so I'd probably have to pick Daniela for the win. Um, Second place, Lucy Charles was very close to Daniela in um, at 70.3 worlds just last month in South Africa, or I guess earlier this month. And she uh, even came off the bike with Daniela. And so I think, I think Lucy is, I don't know if Lucy has like, it's quite there yet for the win, but I think she could be up with, I think I'm going to pick her for second. And third, I actually want to pick Sarah True, who was right tenth. On. She was tenth at a, at at seventy point three worlds, but she did have a flat tire. She still ran an incredible one seventeen. I think the Ironman distance actually suits her. I know we've only done one. She's only done one. She did Frankfurt, but she ran a two fifty four marathon there in her debut Ironman marathon, which yeah. is incredible. And I think she is hungry after um, after seventy point three worlds. And I think. Kona suits her. I mean, I do think having, I've trained with Sarah a little bit and just watched her through her ITU career. And I think it suits her in that it is a tactical race. So she has that ITU background and then it is, you know, you having a good swim, she's a good swimmer and having that good swim is really beneficial in Kona because it just puts you in the race. And then, you know, you hang on, on the bike and then if she can, you know, run like that, I don't think even really strong runners like Miranda Carfrey and Ann Hogg who are you know fantastic runners but if they come off the bike and give Sarah you know 3 or 4 minutes coming off the bike I don't think they can catch her so there's my women's podium
0: Right on. I'm a Sarah True fan, and you have a good interview on an, an Iron Women with Sarah True uh, yeah. a, few, a few months ago. Yeah. And she she Patrick she's the she's the wife of Ben True, who has run 13 flat for 5K. So there there there's there your he, running tie-in.
2: There you go. <laughs> yeah, and she's so, a fantastic
1: uh, runner as well. They definitely. Uh, yeah, I've heard sure. Ben is actually a really good cyclist, but a very terrible swimmer. So we probably won't <laughs> see him on any triathlon start lines anytime soon.
2: All right. Good to know so we'll end with one final question, and this is something we usually end it with with a lot of our guests so you've always obviously spent a lot of time swimming laps around pools, you know riding around roads and riding on trainers and running around tracks and trails. So tell us you know maybe one or two of your favorite workouts
1: Well, oh goodness um, so kind of my one of my favorite swim workouts I actually love doing. Like 300s and 400s, which I know sounds like kind of crazy, but that's just a really good distance for me. Um, that's actually what I did this morning. Was we did some we did 300s and 200s at like threshold pace. So it's like faster than race pace, but you're you know going pretty hard with very short rest. Um, that's kind of my favorite for swimming. Um, for for cycling, um, I love hill repeats you know, that's, I really like hill repeats. Um, around here we have some nice, like long sustained climbs and those are, you know, those are my favorite, even though I know it's kind of boring, I guess, just going back and forth. But again, like I like riding the same terrain over and over again. I love riding the trainer. So I don't really get bored and I like kind of knowing on a hill, like here's where it pitches up a little bit more and you press a little bit more. So hill repeats, anything from, 10 to 30 minute hill repeats um are probably my favorite thing to do on the bike and then running um i either like you know just an aerobic trail run just because you kind of get to get lost you can listen to a podcast you can kind of just like zone out and just you know nothing crazy long maybe like 60 to 90 minutes you know just kind of where you you finish and you feel good or i like doing probably something like mile repeats again, like the repeats are kind of my favorite, which I would do them on the track or on a flat stretch of road, like a dirt road. Um, and just doing repeats, um, just where you can dial in a pace again, like kind of similar to what I like in the swimming where in swimming where it's like, you know, hard effort, not all out, but hard effort with short rest. That's probably my, my favorite, um, hard running workout.
0: Very good. Yeah. I feel like a, a lot of the, the the workouts you describe and the things that you enjoy, they probably connect back to the fact that you spent so much time, you know, looking at the black line over the course of the past 25 years, right?
1: I know. That's like someone when I did a, a recent running workout, they're like, you're just going to run back and forth on a road like a one mile stretch like every time. I'm like, yeah, this is what I love. I'm like, yeah, I do. I love the black line. I love, you know, I don't mind repetition. I think there, you know, there's a lot of opportunities for growth and repetition. You can always pick a different road next time.
0: Right on, right on. And then, and there was there was a video that you posted on YouTube fairly recently of you doing mile repeats with one of your training partners, right?
1: Yes. So Dylan Gillespie is a athlete here in Bozeman, and he actually just took his pro card this season. Um, and he did his first. He's done two pro races. He actually came off the bike fourth in uh, Santa Cruz um, just last weekend and finished thirteenth. He's a young guy, and he he is a strong swimmer. But originally, when we first started training together, I could beat him in the pool, and I could crush him running. And that day, those um, mile repeats was actually the first time he ever beat me running. And I'm like, oh, it's been nice while it lasted. It wasn't even like I did bad. (laughs) I had a bad workout. It's just it's fun watching him improve. Like that is it's it's really fun watching him improve and getting, you know, these young people in the sport. And they're really excited and they bring this really good energy. And even though I guess I'm not old, I'm 33. But it's it's nice having these people in their young 20s or in their low early 20s kind of. Just showing, you know, this—they're still excited. There's everything's still new, and it makes me happy for the future of the sport.
0: Right on. That's a good note to end on. Haley Chura, we really appreciate your being with us here on the Most Pleasant Exhaustion Podcast.
1: Yes, thanks, guys. Thanks for all you do. I love all the um, all the technical stuff because that's all the you know those are the things I don't necessarily know. So when I can tune in and hear all about VO2 max and different workout ideas, I appreciate it. So keep up the good work. Thanks, guys.
0: And that'll do it for another installment of the Most Pleasant Exhaustion Podcast. Thanks for joining us. You can find us on Twitter, at Pleasant Podcast, or on Facebook, facebook.com slash Podcast. Don't forget to check out our sponsors, too. You can find ITL Coaching and Performance at itlcoaching.com at ITL Coaching on Twitter or on Facebook at facebook.com slash ITL Coaching and Performance. And of course, our new sponsor, Blue Pineapple Travel, a full-service travel agency that can book travel anywhere in the world for you. They're on Facebook at facebook.com slash bluepineappletravel, on Instagram at instagram.com slash bluepineappletravel, or simply at bluepineappletravel.com. On behalf of Patrick Ollinger, this is George Darden. Thanks again for joining us on the Most Pleasant Exhaustion podcast. See you next time.